Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Listen to any true crime podcast, and you are likely to find an episode on a child who has died of abuse and neglect. My other podcast, Stolen Lives, we have so many episodes on children whose lives were cut short because they were beaten, starved, suffocated and burned. For today's episode, I could have included close to a thousand children who have died at the hands of a family member or caregiver. Deepening this tragedy, in most of these cases, the abuser, the murderer, was known to caseworkers whose job was to protect them. Children failed by the system, this week on Mysteriously Listed. Number 5. Phoebe Jonchuk Five-year-old Phoebe Jonchuk's short life was marred with family violence. But up to her death, this was mostly confined between her troubled parents. Numerous reports had been filed by police and state child welfare authorities regarding her father, John, and her mother, Michelle. There were allegations of fistfights, threats using a box cutter, and stalking or with Phoebe being used as a pawn in this toxic relationship. Five times Department of Children and Families had received reports questioning Phoebe's safety under both John and Michelle's care. The first report received on April 2012, when Phoebe was just two years old. It was alleged that John had used crystal meth, had choked Michelle and locked Phoebe in a bedroom, where potentially fatal pharmaceutical medication was kept in arm's reach of the toddler. At this stage, John already had a significant criminal history, including six arrests for battery, domestic violence and drunk driving. It wasn't just these reports that were evidence of John's volatile behaviour. John and Michelle's former landlord told authorities that he had seen drug paraphernalia in their home. There were doors kicked in, and he had to replace windows that had been broken during their explosive arguments. In the landlord's own words, the couple were, quote, very erratic, unquote. All five reports were closed by the DCF, with no action taken to protect little Phoebe. They concluded, quote, there were no concerns for the family, unquote. This was despite John not attending the court-mandated domestic violence therapy sessions with a psychiatrist. It wasn't just John, though. In 2013, the DCF received a report that Michelle was hostile, abusing methamphetamines, cocaine and alcohol. On one occasion, she fell down drunk in public while in custody of Phoebe. But again, no action was taken to protect her, 
and this report was also closed without any action taken to remove Phoebe from this horrific environment. In late December 2014, only weeks before Phoebe's murder, the DCF hotline received another call. Phoebe was now living with her father, and the pair did not have a stable home. They were couch surfing between different relatives' home. It is not as if Michelle was faring much better. She was in another abusive relationship, and her drug addictions and mental health were spiralling out of control. The report was still pending when John's own lawyer, he called DCF one last time on the day Phoebe died. DCF were told that John was driving all over town in his pyjamas with Phoebe in the car. Quote, the father seemed depressed and delusional, unquote. Despite this alarming report, no action was taken to locate the pair. Shortly after midnight on January 8, 2015, John drove to the Sunshine Skyway Bridge in his white Chrysler PT Cruiser. This is when a county sheriff's officer spotted him. John stopped the car on the bridge. As the deputies closed in on him, John began talking incoherently. He walked around the car and picked up five-year-old Phoebe out of her seat. He hugged her to his chest and then threw her off the bridge to her death 60 feet below. Phoebe's body would later be found in Tampa Bay, Florida, an hour away. John attempted to flee the scene but was quickly apprehended and arrested for his daughter's murder. He would be admitted into a state mental institution while it was deemed whether he was fit to stand trial. He would ultimately be deemed competent, and in April 2019, he would be found guilty of first-degree murder. He will spend the rest of his life in prison. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Number four, Tristan Adams. Two-year-old Tristan Adams was taken from his mother, Elisa Benito, when he was just a baby so she could complete a drug treatment program. His father, Hoyt Adams, he wasn't an option because he was incarcerated. So Tristan and his siblings were put into the foster home of Michael and Michelle Beer, a decision that would ultimately cost this sweet little toddler his life. 
Michael B had already been questioned in the connection of serious injuries of another child who had been put into their care. In 1993, a two-year-old foster child was discovered with a cracked skull, a broken leg, several bruises and welts in various stages of recovery. She had bruising to the top of her ears as if someone had twisted them. Beer would never formally be charged and DCF would close their investigation, stating that Beer and his wife were responsible. This was despite no medical care ever being sorted for the little girl's injuries. Regardless of this, Michael and Michelle Beer were given a foster carer licence by a community-based care agency. This would be how Tristan and his siblings were placed in the Beer household in July of 2014. At the time, Tristan would be described as an introvert and quiet. His paternal grandmother called him, quote, a lost soul, unquote. To be honest, I've become hardened and desensitised over six years of podcasting. You have to for your own mental health. But reading quotes from those who knew him and seeing Tristan's face, he is one of the few that will stay with me long after I hit publish on this episode. His big brown eyes, he had the chubbiest cheeks, and his trusting open face. I wish this story had a happier ending. But on the morning of September 28, 2014, after being in the Beer household for only two months, a police report would later state that Beer would stay in the home with Tristan and another child, whilst his wife took the other children to church. When Michelle Beer returned at around 2pm, her husband was carrying Tristan outside their home in Port St. Lucie. He told her he was waiting for the paramedics. Beer would later tell authorities that Tristan was whimpering when he went to change his diaper, that the toddler's lips were turning blue and his eyes were glazed over. DCF would report initially that Tristan died of an infection, In the weeks before his death, Tristan was under the care of a paediatrician because the toddler had been biting his lips, which caused blisters on his lips and tongue. He had been prescribed antibiotics for these blisters that were suspected to have become infected. However, a later autopsy would state that the child died from blunt force trauma, quote, two severe lacerations to his liver, along with bruising to his kidneys, gallbladder, pancreas and the inner linings of his rib cage. Unquote. It was theorised that the only way these injuries could occur would be if he was kicked or punched by an adult, and that it was, quote, impossible to sustain these injuries through a fall or life-saving procedures, unquote. Unfortunately, Tristan would have suffered before he died. His injuries may have taken as long as an hour before he finally lost consciousness. Under questioning by police, Beer denied harming Tristan, even though both he and his wife admitted that Beer was the only person caring for the toddler that day. Strangely, he also denied having any knowledge of the incident from 1993. He denied all allegations. It wasn't until Beer's own daughter was interviewed that she detailed the harsh treatment of the foster children in the home. She would demonstrate on a teddy bear how her father would throw Tristan to the ground 
whenever he was frustrated or upset with the toddler. Even more disturbing was that Beer was working as a substitute teacher at the time, exposing countless children to potential abuse. He would be charged with first-degree murder and aggravated child abuse. During his trial, the defence argued the injuries were caused by overzealous CPR, which the prosecution declared ridiculous, and the jury agreed. They would quickly return with the guilty verdict, sentencing him to up to 30 years in prison. Beer's legal team have stated they plan to file an appeal, an appeal that is still currently pending at the time of this recording, almost three years later. Number three, Jasmine Keane. Baby Jasmine's story is one that I struggle to get my head around. There are so many twists and turns, it feels like a fictional story. But this isn't an hour procedural drama, and there is no happy endings here. Three-year-old Jasmine Keane would suffer from a serious head injury, which would cause her to bleed to death over several hours. Whether her death was an accident or a result of child abuse, we don't know. It has never been officially determined. For much of her short life, Jasmine was under medical care to try and figure out why she was always covered in bruises. Because of this, DCF was contacted twice in June and July of 2013, stating concern that the toddler was being abused. Jasmine's mother, Jessica Keane, would convince not only DCF, but also medical practitioners that Jasmine had a blood clotting disorder that resulted in extensive bruising. While DCF were conducting their investigation as to where these bruises were actually coming from, Jasmine passed away on August 3rd, 2013. Following her death, the child protection team in St. Petersburg made some alarming claims in their report, stating that Jasmine was misdiagnosed as having a bleeding disorder, and this misdiagnosis would never have occurred if Jasmine's mother, Jessica, had not provided her daughter's doctors with, quote, false and misleading information, unquote. But then the medical examiner came out with his own findings that contradicted this report. He found in Jasmine's autopsy that the toddler did in fact have such a disorder, but the official cause of death was determined to be due to blunt force trauma. But how Jasmine sustained this fatal injury, this was unexplained. Regardless, there was another matter that Jessica lied to DCF about. When they were told Jasmine was at risk due to the violence from her mother's boyfriend, David Baldridge, who had a history of child abuse allegations, Jessica denied they were in a relationship or that he was around Jessica at all. According to reports, three times between 2005 and 2009, Baldridge was accused of physically assaulting children. In 2005, it was his son who was two years old at the time. He suffered, quote, marks on his lower back, buttocks and lower legs, unquote. And in 2007, another two-year-old in his care suffered from, quote, a swollen ear, a bruised face 
and bruising on his back, unquote. Finally, in 2009, that same child was reported to have a bruise on his forehead after Baldridge gave him, quote, knuckles, unquote. Because it was unknown how Jasmine received her head injury and because of her blood disorder, there was no official determination of abuse. But what could be determined was that Jasmine was neglected by Jessica directly due to the lack of medical attention for her head injury that resulted in her death. Number 2. Alia Branham By the spring of 2013, there was mounting evidence that two-year-old Alia Branham was in danger. Her mother, 21-year-old Chelsea Huggett, suffered with a chemical imbalance. She claimed it was a result of her service in the military, but regardless, this condition caused her to be explosively angry, and she would tell family and friends that she was struggling to cope with a needy toddler. Alia had first come to DCF's attention in June of 2012. Two calls were received to their abuse hotline that Huggett and Alia were living in a hot storage shed and the pair were homeless. The DCF deemed these reports unworthy of a further follow-up. And then on August 8, 2012, the same agency received information that a liar was underweight and she was suffering from a horrible diaper rash because Huggett's on-again and off-again boyfriend, Jason Ruin, refused to change her when he was left to care for the two-year-old. The diaper rash had gotten so bad that a liar's legs were bleeding. It was also reported to DCF that Ruin had allegedly threatened to kill Huggett with a box cutter. Because of this last allegation of domestic violence, Ruin would be involuntary committed for a period. One final report would come from the Veterans Administration Office. Huggett would be in attendance there with a liar when the toddler began to cry. Huggett would respond to this by placing a blanket over her daughter's face and smacking her on the legs. She would hit the baby so hard that a liar would have finger-shaped welts marked on her. Huggett would deny her goal was to suffocate a liar, but admitted that she did have severe anger issues. Despite all these reports, DCF discounted the physical abuse allegations, though it was concluded that a liar had been beaten. The only action taken was that Huggett had to sign a safety plan, promising not to use excessive corporal punishment. She was also referred to a local program for hands-on parenting advice. On April 26, 2013, Huggett would call 911 to report finding a liar unresponsive. Despite repeated attempts to revive her by emergency services at the scene, she would later be pronounced dead at the hospital. At the time of her death, Aliyah's tiny body would be covered with bruises, including her face, head, arm, legs, back and shoulders. She had yellow fluid coming out of her ears, and she was bleeding from the nose and ears. The medical examiner determined she had a skull fracture and hemorrhaging on the left side of her swollen brain. When interviewed by the police, Huggett, who was now eight months pregnant with her second child, she would blame Ruin. 
She told police officers that he had killed a liar by spraying her with bug repellent. However, a liar's injuries were not consistent with this. Huggett would later admit that she was responsible, that on the evening of April 26th, a liar was whining. She was overtired and just wanted a cuddle from her mother, trying to climb on her. Frustrated that she could not get Huggett to comply with her requests, she started throwing a tantrum, a natural response from a two-year-old. Huggett would quickly tire of this and scream at her daughter to, quote, shut the fuck up, unquote, and she covered the toddler's mouth with her hands to muffle her cries. When this didn't work, Huggett shook a liar until she stopped crying. The damage most likely would have been irreversible at this point. It wasn't enough for Huggett, though. She slammed Elias' head into the wall and headbutted her. This would ultimately fracture Elias' skull and kill her. In April 2014, one year after the death of Elias Branham, a judge handed down the maximum sentence available for first-degree murder and child abuse, 30 years in prison. However, it's nothing close to what was deserved for taking this baby's entire life. Number 1. Damien Wygant The family of 16-month-old Damien Wygant has significant involvement with child welfare in their home state of California, even before Damien's birth. His father, Cody Wygant, had a history of marijuana abuse as well as being arrested for rape. His mother, Jessica Dufour, suffered from a mental illness that was not medically treated. Both had a history of homelessness. In late December 2013, social workers responded to reports of Damien and his newborn baby sister being neglected. Because of this, the family were sent to live with Dufour's mother, Geneva Dufour, in January of 2014. Only four months later, on April 17, 2014, Damien would be dead. On this day, Damien was rushed to the hospital after Dufour found him in the playpen unresponsive. His father, Wygant, would later confess to killing the toddler. According to his statement, at around 1am, Damien would start crying, interrupting his Xbox game. Wygant would tend to Damien, but instead of giving the 16-month-old a hug or giving him a bottle to soothe him, Instead, Wygant covered the toddler's nose for three to four minutes, until he became limp. He then placed Damien in the playpen and covered him completely with a blanket, tucking the blanket around his head and body. He would be left that way for up to five hours, while Wygant continued to play the Xbox and watched three episodes of Fringe. By the time Damien was finally checked at 6am, he was blue and unresponsive. Wygant would later be charged with murder and child neglect, resulting in great bodily harm. Dufour would later face her own charges in regards to severely neglecting the couple's newborn baby, whose skull had become sunken from being left lying in the crib for long hours, up to 23 hours a day. She also had a severe rash on her neck, 
armpit, back and leg, resulting in tissue loss. This baby would be taken into custody of DCF, but it was too late for little Damien. DCF would later admit their home visit to senior DeFore's house was inadequate. At the time of Damien's death, the home was described as being heavily infested with bugs and admitting a very foul odour. It was so bad that investigators had to bring in a hazmat team to do an air quality study to make sure it was safe for first responders to be in the house. Because of this, and because of her non-action with stepping in on the neglect of the baby, Geneva DeFore was also charged with child abuse. After this, the case seemed to drop off the radar, and I really had to dig to find where these poor excuses of caregivers are now. But in August 2014, Jessica DeFore was sentenced to three years for child neglect, and Geneva DeFore with two years. Both have now served their sentences and have been released. And then in January 2015, Cody Wygant was sentenced to 20 years for the murder of Damien. He will serve 100% of this sentence and be eligible for release in 2035. 2035, when Damien would have only been 22 years old. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you have heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Mayu.